Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening. I'm back again. Thank you for suffering my absence. We've got a hell of a program for you tonight. As you know, saying what others aren't prepared to say is a real crisis in Australia. Debate seems to be denied everywhere. For example, if the Prime Minister's constant attack on us because we're going to vote no to The Voice, if he's so confident, why not have three debates with Peter Dutton? Alba tells us his story, which provides no detail, a rubbish argument that the well-being of disadvantaged Indigenous Australians will be improved by a further layer of bureaucracy. It's a laughable proposition and deserves to be kicked into the bushes. But if you're so confident, Albo, pull on a debate. But you see, this is the point. Oppose experimental vaccines, oppose lockdowns, oppose this nonsense about masks, oppose shutting down businesses, oppose keeping kids out of school, and you'll be accused of delivering another rant. You'll be demonised and cancelled. I know all about that. But I'll tell you one certain truth. We won't be silenced. And that's why the listener numbers on ADH continue to increase. And the more political dishonesty that's dished out to us, the more I'll speak for you and a concerned public that has no voice. That's why voters are turning on the government. I've mentioned the recent survey where, for example, on the issue of the housing shortage, the government has a net disapproval rating of minus 58. A survey of more than 3,000 people showed that the government had significant negative ratings on the voice, health, immigration, and especially regional health care. The Prime Minister's personal standing has declined steeply by nine points since March. Understand, he's never here. 36 of respondents to the poll showed the government was doing very poorly in providing cost of living relief. Another 30% said the government was doing somewhat poorly on the same issue. And that equated to a net negative rating of minus 50. No one is saying the government was managing the cost of living very well. I'll look at the performance of Chalmers shortly. But on the question of managing the economy, there was a net approval rating of minus 24 all up, the negative responses to the government's manage of most is- management of most issues was replicated across Australia, according to the research. Well, the simple truth is this. The government is on the skids and it's got no answers. Just rhetoric and jargon and cliches. 
As I keep saying, it's impossible to nominate any issue on which this government has improved the quality of life for Australians. Family budgets are being smashed by rising interest rates, rising rents, increased cost of childcare, increased food bills. Albanese and Chalmers have to wear this and they've got no answers. They rabbit on about the voice. And now there's the new bill, which I will be looking at, to crush free speech on the internet. Yes, sir. We went through this in 2013, when the Gillard government in its death throes was forced to dump plans, remember, to appoint a media regulator. Well, here they are again. Anthony Albanese tried to shut down opinions that Labor doesn't like. The fine print says, quote, combating, there it is on your screen, misinformation and disinformation bill. George Orwell is not dead. Internet platforms, which you use, threaten with jail or fines of up to 5% of their global turnover if they don't cut down on supposed misinformation. Who decides misinformation and disinformation? Is it the same people who told us there should be lockdowns and business closures and children kept out of school? Is it the same people who told us that the vaccine would end the virus? So the alarmism and hysteria of coronavirus is now being replaced by hypocrisy. The bill says the misinformation ban won't apply to the federal or state governments. So governments will be free to tell lies, as they did on things like ivermectin, and you and I are banned from challenging them. You name me one Australian who would trust government or its agencies to define misinformation. They traded it all the time. Remember the government told us that it wasn't safe to let children play outside during coronavirus? Not true. They tell us now nuclear power is too unsafe for Australia? Not true. They tell us global warming is an existential threat? That's uh, not true. <laughs> but now you see this is designed to frighten people from speaking. Shut down important political debate. So you, uh, you can discuss the dangers of multiculturalism or, multiculturalism or mass immigration or ethnic crime of whites pretending to be Aboriginal, and you'll be in trouble. As one writer said, Albanese has already complained that, quote, misinformation on The Voice was a danger to our society. Now look out. This bill could shut you down from having an opinion different from that of government. Protests on the internet about authoritarian governments or the danger of lockdowns, you'll be shut down and punished. Now, it seems a cliche, but this is another attack on free speech, and it's another instrument to increase government's power over us. I'll be addressing this issue, not tonight, but in detail. A very important point, students with hex debts, and there are many out there, parents listening to me, what kind of brutal government indexes these debts to inflation? It's now called HELP, and the debts rose 7.1% on June 1, the largest increase in three decades. Well done to the Albanese government. Helping young people be better qualified doesn't fit their agenda. And what about older people? We're told more than 40% of aged care residents are no longer fully immunised from COVID-19. The reason is simple. They don't trust the system. They don't trust experimental vaccines. If there were a Royal Commission-style inquiry into the whole coronavirus mess, people might have faith in the system. What aged people need to know is whether immunisation against coronavirus protects them. Or will they die? They should be told how many people have died from the vaccine. We've been lied to on so many issues. It's time we're told the truth. 
The housing mess is no different. Harry Triggerboff has built more apartments than any person in Australia. But he's got to fight government and bureaucrats and the Greens to gain council approval. He's made a simple but universal point. Councils should help increase unit production instead of fighting against it. And he's right. Now, is this good news? A 66-year-old Aboriginal went to court citing the Commonwealth Racial Discrimination Act, which requires that Aboriginal people receive the pension for the same duration as other Australians. This 66-year-old bloke, Aboriginal bloke, argued he should get the age pension earlier because of a shorter life expectancy amongst Indigenous Australians. Well, the federal court found the social security system should not discriminate in favour of one race. How strange is that? should not discriminate in favour of one race. The Prime Minister wants the Constitution, the founding document of the nation, to do just that, discriminate in favour of one race. You just shake your head. Full marks of Tony Abbott again, accusing woke companies of shareholder abuse to, quote, curry favour with the government. He was right when he said, a lot of businesses, they work a lot with government, and a lot of these big sporting groups need government grants, and I think they're both virtue signalling and currying favour in arguing support for the voice. Needless to say, the intellectually gifted Abbott was described as delivering a rant. It's always the same, isn't it? Speak forcefully, powerfully and rationally against the government, and it's a rant in the eyes of the left-wing media. I'm accused of that all the time. Such pejorative language won't shut Tony Abbott up, and thank God for that. Well, some good news stories. A brilliant win by the Australian women's cricket team to retain the Ashes with a dramatic last ball victory against England yesterday. The English batsman, Nat Skyver Brunt, needed to hoist the last ball of the second one-day international at Southampton over the boundary. She failed. Australia wins the Ashes. But in a beautiful gesture by the gifted Australian Elise Perry, who had earlier made 91, Elise went immediately to console the English woman who was batting and didn't hoist the last ball into the grass. Beautiful sportsmanship. At the height of joy over victory, Elise Perry had time for the vanquished. Well, we saw two new Wimbledon champions at the weekend. Marketa Vondrasova, gifted from an early age, but riddled with injury, a spectator at last year's Wimbledon, was calm, graceful and clinical in her defeat of the Tunisian Ons Jabour, who was the runner-up last year. Vondrasova emerged from wrist surgery. She was the world's number 42. She became the first unseated, unseated, uh, sorry, unseeded woman in history to win Wimbledon. The first unseeded woman in all history to win the Wimbledon Championship. But, but, it should not be controversial to say that a two-set victory in the women's final should not receive the same prize money as the winner of the men's singles. The 20-year-old Carlos Alcaraz, just 20, has beaten the remarkable Novak Djokovic, 36 years of age. Both players are tennis freaks. The standard was astonishing. I watched every ball. The young boat prevailed in the end. Both were pleasingly gracious in victory and defeat. It was the kind of game over nearly five hours where no one should have been a loser. But don't tell me the winner of the women's championship over two sets should be paid the same as the winner of that almost gruelling five-hour encounter. And while we're talking winning, it's something that can't be said, sadly, of Australian rugby. 
The chairman of Australian rugby, this Blake McLennan, described the appointment of Eddie Jones as the saviour of the game. And without advertising the job, Eddie Jones was put in charge of all rugby at every level. Amazing. Well, last week, the test team lost to South Africa. Last Saturday, they lost to Argentina. On Friday night, Australia A, full of test players, lost to Tonga. The women's rugby side were thrashed by Canada and our under-20 men were beaten out of the park in the under-20 World Cup playing off for fifth. Jones has been in the job for months. There's no evidence that anything has changed since Dave Rennie got the sack. Anyway, tomorrow night, we've got the men's cricket team trying to emulate the achievement of the women. The critical fourth Ashes test starts again. Pick David Warner and the two all-rounders and leave the spinner out. All happening at the old Trafford cricket ground, not the rugby league home of Manchester United, but it does have a capacity of 50,000. And it's all on tomorrow night in Manchester. Look, the Dutton opposition must not be sidetracked. I'll come shortly to the Albanese government and Chalmers and their reckless mates. But haven't I been telling you for months that the honeymoon is over? I'll have more to say about that in a moment, but what I will just say for now is there is no future for us as a nation in our attempts to turn all this around by pretending that voting for independents, who are not independent anyway, or voting for Teals is going to achieve anything. The Liberal Party under Dutton is making progress. Dutton is saying a lot of good things. I'll deal with them. But success in life, in sport, in business, in politics, is often about strategy. The opposition, Peter Dutton, have to review their strategy because they're missing one thing, and it's important. They seem to let the government off the hook on the Higgins affair. Gallagher should be gone, and the opposition should not be letting up. Now, remember Gallagher said on June 4, 2021, two years ago, in relation to the Higgins affair, no one had any knowledge of the allegations. How dare you to Linda Reynolds? But then in June this year, two years later, only weeks ago, Knowing she had lied, Gallagher to the Parliament then confessed, I was aware of some allegations in the days leading up to Brittany Higgins making those allegations public, unquote. This person, Katie Gallagher, should not be in the Parliament. But let's get back to Higgins. You might remember the allegations of rape inside a government minister's office were used to undermine Prime Minister Morrison, his government and his reputation. That was evidenced by the language Higgins used. She boasted on March 26, 2021, that the then Prime Minister Morrison, quote, is about to be effed over. We've got him, unquote. Rallies, you might remember, were staged in Melbourne, Sydney and Canberra. One outside Parliament House. Union officials were bussed to Canberra. Speeches were made, apologies were offered. It was, as one writer has described, and I quote, an unstoppable onslaught of media stories highlighting the Morrison government's misogyny, unquote. And all of this continued for months, all designed to raise anger and outrage in everyday Australians. The media helped because of the alleged mistreatment of women by the Morrison government. Well, this is where Dutton must get tough. More facts about the case have come to light. As I've said, the reason Albanese and co have backed Gallagher is that they were all in this together used the Higgins affair to tip Morrison out of government. This was the issue they believed that would destroy Morrison. Suddenly, Albanese's prime minister with 32% of the vote. One of the first things he did was to compensate Higgins with a confidential payment reportedly worth up to $3 million. Gallagher has admitted she was a close friend of the boyfriend of Higgins. But she wants you to believe that she wasn't involved in the compensation payment 
But as I've said many times, Gallagher was the minister who signs all the checks. What Dutton and his team have to understand is that the Albanese government wants no more questions on this. But the public want answers. For example, we now learn that crucial closed-circuit TV depicting Learman and Higgins on the night she alleges she was raped has been automatically wiped off the Parliament House service. And in the defamation case that Learman has brought against Network 10 and the journalist Lisa Wilkinson, documents from numerous parties were subpoenaed and produced to the court yesterday. One included details of a book deal for Miss Higgins, understood to be worth more than $325,000. There's good money in this allegation gig, especially when the allegations are not correct. Newsweekly recently put all this into perspective. The lump sum payable for injuries resulting in death, injuries resulting in death under Comcare, $617,130.59. I don't know what the 59 cents has got to do with it, plus funeral expenses of $14,062.53. If someone is permanently incapacitated in the employment of the Commonwealth, permanently incapacitated, $220,000. $861.39. For veterans, the Commonwealth liability for the death of an Australian soldier giving his life in a theatre of war, $173,819.34. But only if the Commonwealth accepts liability for the veteran's death. And I can assure you that that poor bugger's family would have to fight like hell to get the $173,000. Higgins, we're told, got the money somewhere around $3 million for future economic loss, past economic loss, general damages and future assistance with at-home care and past and future out-of-pocket expenses. The public are saying what the hell's going on here. Janet Albrechtson, writing recently The Australian, asserted that Higgins was awarded compensation, as News Weekly puts it, resulting from a claim of 40 years' worth of economic loss and the inability to pursue a political career. Documents obtained by Albrechtson state that Higgins' claim was that she was, quote, medically unfit for any form of employment and has been given a very poor prognosis for future employment. Higgins received $2.5 million in economic loss. But Higgins worked as the media advisor for the First People's Assembly of Victoria. And according to her LinkedIn profile, she was an interim media advisor with the Queensland Human Rights Commission. And God forbid she's been appointed, remember, medically unfit for any form of employment, any form of employment, and a very poor prognosis for future employment. God forbid she's been appointed a visiting fellow at the Australian National University Global Institute for Women's Leadership. Good God. She's posed for pictures outside a UN, the UN building in Geneva, announcing that she's, quote, honoured to intern this year at the UN Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, unquote. At the same time as all this business in Canberra was going on, she was completing a degree at Griffith University. Remember, medically unfit for any form of employment. Well, she's enrolled for a Master of Business Administration, a course for people with business ambition. And the three jobs that I outlined, First People's Assembly of Victoria, visiting fellow at the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, and 15-hour weeks with the Queensland Human Rights Commission, all of those she undertook between the alleged rape and her payout. But she claimed she couldn't work at all. 
millions of taxpayers' money for, quote, future economic loss, past economic loss, general damages, and future assistance with at-home care, and past and future out-of-pocket expenses. Peter Dutton, you can't afford to be sidetracked. This issue needs to be front and centre. Why were Senators Reynolds and Cash excluded from the compensation hearing? How can Attorney General Dreyfus say the government can't provide any further details? The Peter Dutton opposition strategy has to pursue this matter relentlessly through the parliament. As News Weekly rightly argues, quote, not for retribution, not for tit-for-tat politics, but on behalf of the Australian taxpayer and any Commonwealth employee who seeks a just settlement as a result of injury or death from their public service, unquote. Remember, Higgins has been awarded compensation from a claim of 40 years' worth of economic loss, medically unfit for any form of employment. For veterans, the Commonwealth liability for a member's death, 173000 Higgins has received something between 2.5 and 3 million. Like The Voice, we're given no detail. And Albanese and Attorney General Dreyfus arrogantly argue we won't get further details. Peter Dutton, you've got to go for broke on this. When you're sick of saying it, the public will start to understand what a sickening betrayal of the taxpayers this whole Higgins charade has become, infested with lies. Well, look, is the issue Morrison and Co re-robo-debt or is it a bigger issue concerning a toothless public service? Extraordinary stuff, this. It's clear even from Saturday's by-election that with crises all around it, cost of living, the failure of the voice campaign and energy policy taking us into economic oblivion, the list is endless. So the Albanese government wants to talk about robo-debt and totally discredit the previous Morrison government. But the question has to be asked, Whatever the omissions of the Morrison government, and there were many, what about the public service? The Robodebt Royal Commission made the point that the legitimate expectation of public servants is that they act, and I quote, with care, diligence and integrity, unquote, and provide the government with advice that is, quote, frank and honest. But the Royal Commissioner of this Robodebt fiasco spoke of, quote, the lengths to which public servants were prepared to go to oblige ministers on a quest for savings, unquote. The Royal Commission also talked about revelations of, quote, dishonesty and collusion, unquote, in preventing legal opinion seeing the light of day. It also said, and I quote, equally disheartening was the ineffectiveness of what one might consider institutional checks and balances the Commonwealth Ombudsman's Office, the Office of Legal Services Coordination, the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner and the Administrator of Appeals Tribunal in presenting any hindrance to the scheme's continuance. Now, given that we've all had experience with the tax office, where it costs you a fortune to take them on, it's clear that, the, what, as Robert Gottliebson has written, the whole robo-debt scheme was a mirror image of the unfair way the tax office operates in Australia. Amen to that. So in the robo-debt fiasco, the Department of Human Services embraced the tax office system of justice, where it told the tax office what the pensioner's past income was, and therefore their pension entitlement. And the pensioner had to prove these powerful bureaucracies wrong. When the Department of Human Services, along with the tax office, sent out to the pensioner what they owed when they didn't, the pensioner was confronted with a debt on which interest was to be charged. Oh. 
The tax office don't miss you. The anxiety and disbelief of pensioners was at an all-time high as they tried to sort out how the government had calculated their income and therefore their entitlements and therefore what the pensioner owed if indeed he had anything. And the Department of Human Services embraced the tax office practice of putting a garnishee on a person's bank account to extract payments. That is, you can't touch your money. It's theirs. And they'll take your money from you. There was no properly set up independent group that a pensioner or an unemployed person could go to to demand that the Department of Human Services show how they made their calculations. But it's always the same with the tax office. Peter Jennings has written powerfully about this. And he asks, will our political and public servant leaders be, any, be indifferent in responding to the Royal Commission's review? Peter Jennings highlights that in her 655 page report, Catherine Holmes argues that robo-debt quote, was put together on an ill-conceived embryonic idea and rushed to cabinet the misconceived notion that unreviewed discrepancies between the Australian Tax Office and the Department of Human Services income data, quote, represented mountains of gold. Peter Jennings was the, in other words, the hunting down money, was the executive director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, but he has worked at senior levels in the Australian Public Service on defence and national security. And Peter Jennings joins me tonight. Peter, there's been a relentless attack, indeed humiliation of Scott Morrison to become the fall guy in all of this. But is it really a fault of the system? I think there's a lot of blame to share around, Alan. Uh, there's no doubt that I think Scott Morrison didn't use the public service well um, as leader, partly because he had no confidence in the public service. Uh, and I'm sure you'll remember that, that famous meeting just a few days after the 2019 election when Morrison called together the, the senior heads of the public service and said, look, you guys do the implementing and we'll do the thinking. Uh, and I think there was too much of that. There was too much free willing on Morrison's part. But the, the blame on the public service side was we had organisations that simply had forgotten how to do complex policy well. Um, I completely agree with your introductory assessment that there is almost uh, a cynicism when it comes to dealing with average Australians that somehow they're always going to be in the wrong. Uh, and that put a lot of people offside. And they were too obliging to ministers. They, they were too quick to help, not quick enough to say, hang on a moment, let's just think about this. So every child shares a price. There's, there's lots of blame to go around in the robo-debt story. And uh, one final point to make, Alan, is simply to say it's not just one incident. It's not just robo-debt. I, I can see examples of this happening with the current government in terms of policy making on the fly and a public service which doesn't seem to have the strength to kind of slow that process down or add better ideas. Uh, and so the whole process of public policy making in Australia, I think, is getting poorer and poorer as, as time goes by. Absolutely. Very interesting comment. Just coming back to your point about Morrison, you see, where he said, well, you do the implementing to the public service and we've got the ideas. I can't imagine anyone in government having two ideas, let alone one I might add. But, but Peter, is there a sense of entitlement amongst politicians, both Liberal and Labor, who think that an election victory gives them unchallengeable rights? I mean, the Albanese government got, what, 32% of the vote? 
But now there are all sorts of policies being foisted on the public with no willingness from government to debate them. And there's no doubt with Scott Morrison, we've got robo-debt, an inquiry into his secret ministries, audits of infrastructure programs like this commuter car park fund. But Scott Morrison's defence was, well, the findings which are adverse to me have been based on a fundamental misunderstanding of how government operates. Um, where are, uh, you've worked in government, I've worked for a Prime Minister, uh, we were used to <laughs> the public service and then John Stone at Treasury would keep the door shut and he wasn't going to endorse something that he didn't agree with. Where are today the independent public servants in all of this? Yes, I don't, I don't really see them. Uh, I, I started my uh, defence career working with uh, Tony Ayres, who was uh, incredibly yeah. tough Secretary of Defence. Yes. Tony had no difficulty telling a minister that uh, a minister had a really bad idea and they should think it over again. And I reflect, Ellen, it was also in some respects a kinder, gentler age. I, you know, I worked for John Howard. There was no doubting um, Howard's extreme uh, command of policy, but he was also a person able to listen in a polite and respectful way to the advice that yes. came from him, from yes. his bureaucracy. He wanted, he wanted that advice. Yes. Um, and in, in, in recent governments of, of both political stripes, I think there is just this idea of sort of push through Yep. Um, and praise which, you know... We are the government. Sort of we are business. the government. This will happen. We are the government. I mean, you've got Victoria. I mean, you've got, uh, Peter, you've got Victoria. There's Independent Broadband Anti-Corruption Commission report in April, and it found the Andrews government improperly awarded a Labor-affiliated union a $1.2 million contract. Andrews said the report was, quote-unquote, educational. But the Victorian Ombudsman, Deborah Glass, said the report was not educational. Quote, it was a damning report about misconduct of ministerial advisers and ministerial responsibility for those advisers. So, Peter, what on earth does the public make of the fact that governments seem to be indifferent to these conclusions? I suppose the Holmes report we chucked in the bin. Well, you know, I think particularly with the state governments too, you also have a phenomena that it's usually the Premier plus maybe one at best two good quality ministers. Correct. And then it's a long tail, a sort yep. of a lack of talent. Yes. Um, and they kind of get used to sort of steamrolling their way in yep. many meetings. Public servants have a different job, a difficult job. You know, they are there to implement government direction, but they're also there to... Uh, you know, negotiate with ministers what mm. policy outcomes should be based on professional advice. And what I think we've seen missing in the last 10, perhaps 15 years of federal and state politics is that the bureaucracy has become uh, what's euphemistically called as responsive, mm. which means you, you do what we politicians yes. tell you to do. Yeah, I mean, just... Um, and they're not... It's just servants of the government. I mean, Holmes said that, Catherine Holmes, that Scott Morrison, quote, allowed Cabinet to be misled and, quote, failed to meet his ministerial responsibility to ensure that Cabinet was properly informed about what the proposal actually entailed and to ensure that it was lawful. But, Peter, this is what government does. I mean, they get hairs on their chest by telling the public, we are hunting down welfare fraud and any process will do. But, you know from when I was there, where is the independent public service? A bloke like John Stone would say, look, you do what you like, but I'm telling you this is unlawful and you're in political trouble if you do it. Now you go ahead and do it if you like. And that steadied people up. Where are the John Stones today? 
I don't see them. I, I, I think we're seeing promotion into the topmost levels of the public service on the basis of what's called risk management, Ellen, which basically means keep problems away from ministers. Uh, you know, that I think has um, the, the days of really powerful public service mandarins ruling the roost has gone. Probably a, a good thing in some respect. As I say, it has to be a sort of a negotiation between government and the bureaucracy on the one hand. But what's interesting with the Royal Commission report is I can see sort of numerous points along the way where there should have been pause yes. for senior officials yes. to say to government, yes. this isn't working. And that advice um, and that advice should be minuted. I mean, I, I yes, read this yes. report as saying we're not going to clean out this setup by trying to humiliate Scott Morrison. I mean, only today we've got the Victorian Premier killing off the Commonwealth Games. Now, this is a bloke who's pro the Chinese Communist Party, anti the West, bankrupted the state, locked it down more than any other in the world, and now has destroyed the Commonwealth Games. But he decided to hold the games in regional areas to win votes before the election. So the left-wing media today will say, well, what a good man, he's refreshingly honest, he's prioritising health and education. But why did he bid for the Games to begin with? And why wouldn't this be the subject of a corruption commission? Winning votes this way. I mean, government seems unchallengeable and out of control. It's politics all the way down, there's no question about it. And, and I think that's happening in, in pretty much every jurisdiction. Uh, let, let's not talk about where I live, the ACT government, which has just yeah. been on a 20 year frolic to yes. implement its own progressive agenda. Yep. Um, what, what is happening though, and I think that what's interesting with this is it, it is annoying average Australians. I think average Australians feel disenfranchised. I Correct. think they feel cynical Correct. about public servants. They certainly feel cynically cynical about governments, and so we're getting a sort of a a, a splitting apart of you know n normal Australians versus the the so-called elites yep, that, yep, that are yep, governing them. Yep. and that's where minor parties are now becoming you know that's more, it. more and more. That's powerful. it. They're voting so with their feet. They're voting with their feet. They're walking away. I mean, you cite that yep. Holmes in that excellent piece you wrote that Holmes found an appalling lack of record keeping. Which is which are unheard of to me in our day. Minutes were kept of everything, and she said it was driven by shared political and bureaucratic desire to keep sensitive matters away from public view. And Holmes argues, you've quoted, I quote Holmes, quote, nothing I've seen in ministerial briefs or material put to cabinet suggests any tendency to give full and frank advice. Peter, I mean. If any of these ministers have an idea in their head, does the public service just fall into line? Did, did it devise this policy, which was welcomed by the government? Yeah. Sadly, I think it's become a case of them being uh, senior officials being too obliging. Uh, and in fact, the role that secretaries and deputy secretaries play is they have to sort of um, intuit what a minister wants and actually deliver it to a minister before it's even formally yes. requested yeah. and then don't don't write it down no. in, in defense uh, we, we were somewhat protected because we had national security classification yes. secret top secret yes. which meant that stuff was not being released under mm. freedom of information in social departments i think all the most crucial stuff wasn't being 
written down. No, no, no. Because people we don't want, want to, Peter. We don't want. We don't want a paper trail. We don't want a paper trail yes, these days, eh? I mean, you've said in the piece you wrote there was no capacity to listen and react to clear evidence that it was harming people who'd done nothing wrong. Now, I'm speaking to you tonight because this report on RoboDebt tells us that we're stuffed. I mean, government's in disarray and it's unaccountable and a public service that seems to have lost its independence. And you say, and I quote, Peter Jennings writes, spend a few hours reading the Royal Commission report and you'll come away with the view that many politicians and public officials must regard average Australians with contempt. And as you say, the bigger issue is how governments and the public service develop and explain policy. So, Peter, it's easy to talk about Morrison's failure. But what about the Attorney General's department? What about the Ombudsman? Uh, you know, I've worked for a Prime Minister. We had independent advice from the Department of Finance, the Attorney General, Treasury, whatever. It was written, written down. I mean, did none of these intervene when it was obvious robo-debt was an unlawful program? It, that very much seems to be the outcome, Alan, was that at the end of the day, <clears throat> you had a bunch of people who, even if they had um, personal misgivings, they weren't going to put those before government. There's cases in the Royal Commission report where you can see junior people inside the department actually expressed concern and, and were really marginalised and told they weren't going to be part of the process, including some people that left the organisation. So there were too many obliging people who mm. just wanted to deliver for the government mm. and then refused to read the signs when it started to go off the rails very, mm. very quickly, as a matter of fact. See, there's a public... And, um, there's a, sorry, sorry, Peter, go on. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say that the, the thing that kind of um, made it even more obvious to me was the ag aggressive way that they were taking this material to Australian citizens. And, um, you know, I'm, I've been a career public servant, but I've had a taste of that in dealing with the ATO, for example, as it sounds to me like you have. And what I found really strange was that the public service seemed to have gotten itself into a mood where it was treating average Australians with contempt, contempt um, almost imagining that, in fact, they had something to hide, that they were doing mm. things that were wrong, <clears throat> and no one was listening to those signals. No. No. So this, this is dangerous. See, and, I, a, and I think, you know... Yeah, there's a public service commission... Sorry, I was just going to say, the current, the current government is still suffering oh, from that problem. Yeah, still oh, that on problem energy again. policy, on energy policy, I mean, tax policy, uh, superannuation, don't listen to anyone. See, there's a public service commission, which the public aren't aware of, I mean, God knows how many of these instrumentalities there are, but why doesn't it protest about the disempowering of the public service and the undermining of the public service's ability to say, like, as I said, John Stone would say, that what you're doing is unlawful. I mean, most of these ministers and MPs read nothing. So what's the point of all these reviews? I mean, we had that 2018 Moss review and it found that the Agriculture Department fraudulently altered veterinarian assess assessments to avoid its legal responsibility to report abuse in the export of live sheep. Where was the public service commission? I mean, how can this happen with an experienced, knowledgeable and independent public service? Well, public service commissioners, just like secretaries of departments, are appointed by the government of the day. And I think they've become afflicted with the uh, sort of sense of being obliging and responsive. There, there used to be in the annual report of the public service commission uh, reports of um, states of the public service that actually do surveys of public servants. 
And when it got to a point where a significant number, I think over 20% from memory of public servants were reporting that they were being bullied by their bosses, mm. those surveys ceased to be reported, Alan. So mm. I think there's a lot of toxic behaviour in the public service, Definitely. which is simply now Definitely, ignored. definitely. I mean, you and I talk about robo-debt tonight, but out there in viewer land, they're saying, well, how do we finish up with things like robo-debt, pink bats, building the education yep. revolution, the snowy hydro, completely out of control? I mean, the Labor government will now be after scalps and the Royal Commission talks about, quote, the referral of individuals for civil action or criminal prosecution. But there are wider issues here, aren't there? I mean, you've been around seven years as a ministerial advisor, brilliant career in defence. But you correctly say that while the public service is there to implement government policy, that has to be balanced against having the guts and the independence to tell government that what they're proposing is stupid. That's not happening, clearly not happening, Peter. Not, not enough. And, uh, you know, I can remember being in, in rooms with secretaries and ministers where precisely those sorts of conversations yes. were held. Yes. And, and yes. It, was, it, was, it was on the point, well, Minister, if you're silly enough to want to do this, yes. um, but usually smart ministers would know that, you know, they should listen to their secretaries. And... Um, I just don't see that that happening right now. It's the era of public service responsiveness. And what we need to get back to is the era of public service quality advice. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, the trick is, how do you get ministers to want that? You know, yes. because they should need, they need that for their own survival. Yeah. But too often what we're getting is ministers who just want to wing it. And yeah. sadly, Robert, for example. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you say of today, Peter Jennings has said of today, and I quote, the problem is more an emerging coalition. Now, you've got to think about this when you're talking about the headlines about robo-debt and all the rest of it. He talks about an emerging coalition of mediocrity, an axis of the average between media, obsessed ministers, controlling, this is a good point, controlling but clueless staff members. I mean, when you look at this business about Brittany Higgins, how could these people give sensible advice on anything? They've got no, no public service experience, they've got no life experience. So Peter talks about clueless staff, staff members, and public servants, he says, more eager to please than to state difficult truths. He says the Royal, this is Peter Jenkins writing this, Peter Jennings, the Royal Commission report does not expose a monstrous conspiracy so much as a collection of lazy platitudes, sleepy implementation and half-covered trails. Well, Peter, we have to be indebted to Holmes for highlighting the hopelessness of government and its advisers, but we saw that during coronavirus. I mean, you allude to the final chapter in the Holmes report, pointing to, quote, repeated failures by members of the Australian Public Service to discharge their professional obligations and to adhere to the values and standards that apply to their roles. Now, Peter, surely this highlights, and our viewers should know it, there is a completely broken system. Who's going to fix it? Gosh, well, um, you'd hope that voters will ultimately, but of course they can only pick on the rather limited choices that they've they've got in front of them. We, we need a politician of the calibre of a John Howard. Yeah. Uh, you know, yes. uh, I worked directly for Howard in his office for a number of years. What I admired about him was the calm, deliberative way that he went about making policy. Yeah, he made mistakes too, but you know, he he knew how to run his cabinet. 
He had high expectations of ministers uh, and high expectations of public servants. Since that time, Alan, uh, you know, I've recently finished uh, being the head of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. I, I ran that outfit for 10 years. During that time, I had seven defence ministers um, and, you know, God knows how many junior ministers. Um, and so we've seen a very quick turnover of ministers, which I think has been part of the problem. Uh, governments being circulated in and out of office uh, very, very quickly. Um, the whole system, I think, now is in need of a sort of a period of calm reflection about how we do this better. Mm. Um, and you kind of hope that a new government would deliver it, but I have to say I, I see no indications that... None whatever. None whatever. None whatever. The arrogance of Bowen is a metaphor of that. He knows everything. Peter, it's great, <laughs> it's great to talk to you. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you for your very important observations. It's Peter Jennings with wide experience of the public service, as you heard him just say then, the former executive director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Well, let me tell you a few home truths about the Albanese government. The coalition won the Fadden by-election at the weekend with a swing on first preference votes, you weren't told this, of 4.5%. Labor campaigned on fear, and there's no doubt that the excellent primary vote for the coalition was diminished by rank-and-file Liberals concerned over the previous member, Stuart Robert. So to get a 4.5% swing for the coalition, carrying that baggage is a very significant result. The newly elected member, Cameron Caldwell, who I don't know, but he seems a very impressive and worthy figure. A couple of other points before I get on to the Albanese government, which is now all over the place like a dog's breakfast. In that Fadden by-election on Saturday, the legalised Cannabis Party gained more votes than the Greens. It was a good performance by Pauline Hanson's One Nation who came third. But has this bloke Jim Chalmers got any brains at all? He's now saying that with a two-party preferred swing of slightly under 3%, anything less than a 4% swing is a poor showing by the coalition. So Chalmers is saying more of you should have voted against the government. The 3% swing's not enough. This Chalmers is the same bloke who made a speech 10 days ago to the Brotherhood of St Lawrence. I've never read such claptrap in my life. He was going to, quote, renew our institutions and, quote, measure what matters. Dripping in jargon, he was going to create new sustainable financial architecture and a well-being framework. Is that so? When the price of groceries, electricity, rent and childcare continue to create havoc amongst suburban families. The honeymoon, I'm telling you, and I've told you this for months, is over. I've been saying that for a long time. The recent data from Suburb Trends has revealed that, quote, a quarter of Sydney is in deep crisis. Renters in Bankstown, Punchbowl and Lakemba are experiencing high rental pain. And the report says if you're spending 35% or more of your household income on rent, you don't have too much left for clothes, kids' sport or anything, unquote. Well, finding a home to rent has been likened to getting blood out of a stone. The report says, quote, when we get to a point where we're trying to draw blood from stone, the pattern we're seeing is that it becomes very unaffordable. It really is sad to see Australia failing. Chalmers owns all this. The founder of Suburb Trends said that families were living out of their cars. The report also stated the obvious that, quote, rents are continuing to escalate with many facing substantial increases in one go. 
a young lady working here for me, has had her rent go up by $200, just a little one bedroom studio, $200 this year increase. Of course, Chalmers doesn't have to worry, he wouldn't know. But is this the transformational government he's talking about? Better capitalism? New sustainable financial architecture? Is this your well-being framework, Dr Chalmers? With a doctorate from ANU that's got nothing to do with economics. Does the new financial architecture provide for power prices rising by nearly 50% for some households? AGL residential customers in New South Wales and South Australia were the hardest hit. Customers on variable rate contracts copped increases of over 45%. AGL's average bill increases. This is Cannon Brooks and all that lot. AGL's average bill increases from July 1 were almost 30% in New South Wales and South Australia. Increases which mean money terms of over $500. Now, of course, this has nothing to do with demonising coal-fired power, does it? Or pursuing a zero emissions fantasy. Just on the zero emissions fantasy, we're now told that we must find $1.5 trillion by the end of the decade to meet 2050 green targets. $1.5 trillion. This expert group, Net Zero Australia, found unsurprisingly that Australia should not simply abandon fossil fuels. Now, I've said along, all along, this reckless mob in Canberra are presiding over the largest economic transformation in Australian history. Now, Dr Chalmers, you can go over the economic cliff with Bowen and Albanese and co. We are not going with you. Dr Chalmers, I know you've got your eye on the leadership, but when you say you're going to measure what matters, are you measuring the 60% or more increase for grocery staples, like rice and cleaning products and frozen vegetables? Dishwasher tablets and tissues have increased by over 30%, and we're told inflation will continue to be a prevalent issue for the remainder of 2023, and that Australians shouldn't expect to see prices drop. Because of inflation, we've had 12 cash rate increases. So we learn of growing stress among young home loan borrowers and retail and hospitality businesses, and there will be bigger squeezes over the coming months. Interest rates are likely to go up once more. For people owning their own home, it's fine. But for the people who are trying to get on the home ownership ladder, they're in enormous pain. Much of this is attributed to an energy policy to demonise coal-fired power, which is a disgrace and, as I've said, a national economic suicide note. I see that, by the way, Delta Electricity has informed the Australian energy market operator that it may keep the Vales Point coal-fired power station open for another four years. Is someone waking up? The incoming chief executive of Delta Electricity has said that market conditions show a desperate need for coal-powered electricity. You can't help but wonder and fear the damage being done by a federal government running an energy policy based on alarmism and ideology. Now, under the recent Mood of the Nation poll by SEC Newgate showed 61% of voters now believe Australia is heading in the wrong direction. But Chalmers is off to India to talk about global warming, while Australia's energy targets are impossible. Impossible. I repeat, 1.5 trillion needed by the end of the decade. That's fewer than seven years away. 1.5 trillion by 2030 to achieve net zero, emission, net zero emissions by 2050. Don't say, I haven't warned you. This is not just impossible, it's a national disgrace. It would make our so-called energy transition one of the biggest and fastest economic transformations in global history. Forgive the language. 
But I'm growing impatient with the reckless irresponsibility of this government and their ideological stupidity. In this, in short, this energy stuff, forgive the language, is bullshit. As always happens, the public are waking up. Popular support for Labor is at its lowest level since the last election. They're fed up with being lectured to on The Voice. They're fearful of where Bowen is dangerously taking us on energy policy. It's hard to find anything that this government is doing that is not damaging to the well-being of voters. I'll finish by saying something about the central curse. As you know, it's inflation. Interest rates are going up to stop spending. Housing is classic. More people chasing basically the same product, basically. And so the price goes up, doesn't it? Well, the interest rate increases are knocking the stuffing out of Australians. But if spending is the problem, the biggest culprit is Chalmers, the I think I'm great treasurer. In the last financial year, the government's spend was $632 billion, forget that figure, 24.8% of GDP, 24.8. Now in 1974, Gough Whitlam was an economic vandal, so he was said, when he increased government spending by 24.7% of GDP. He was a vandal. Well, this bloke's already increased it by 24.8, but this financial year, Federal government spending is estimated, it'll be worse than this, to increase by another 50 billion, to reach 26.5% of GDP. It makes Gough Whitlam look a miser. And this doesn't include rewiring the nation, the National Reconstruction Fund, the Snowy Hydro fantasy with spending out of control, ditto the NDIS. But hang on, it doesn't end there. The four-year estimates by Treasury are always way out. In other words, they're less than what eventually happens. Yet in the final year of the four-year estimates, that's around the corner, 25-26, financial year, virtually tomorrow, government spending, $754 billion. That is an increase of $150 billion, $150,000 million, compared to the coalition's last full year in office, $150 billion. Now, under 61% of those polled in the recent SEC Newgate mood of the nation, 61% the country was heading in the wrong direction, and 46% of Australians are experiencing financial difficulty. Chalmers owns all of this. Mortgage interest repayments are rising nine times faster than rent. Say it slowly. Mortgage interest repayments are rising nine times faster than rent. For the home borrower and the renter, it's becoming disastrous. And Chavez talks about new sustainable financial architecture and a well-being framework. Dr. Chalmers, this is my advice to you. You'll never come on this program, I know, because you couldn't handle the questions. But you're as big a fraud as the policies that you advocate. You and your government have been given a chance. If voters do their homework, you won't be getting another. Nick Cater is a senior fellow at the Menzies Research Centre, but importantly, a significant contributor here on ADH. And you can hear him every Thursday night at eight o'clock. Marvellous stuff, wonderful program. He writes splendidly and with clarity for the Australian newspaper. His insights are a challenge to the woke world of government we live in. So on some critical issues, he joins me tonight. Nick, thank you for your time. Look, before we go any further, can I just ask you about Daniel Andrews? I mean, this man went to a state election promising the Commonwealth Games for regional Victoria to win votes. Now he said today it's off with little notice to anybody. The Commonwealth Games, over 90 years old, has been killed off by Daniel Andrews. 
Nick, what do we make of this bloke? And at the end of the day, to whom is he accountable? Well, he's accountable to the Victorian electorate, and I hope they bear that in mind next time they go to the polls, Alan. Uh, look, like this, this, I could see this coming a mile off. The man is, is spending so much money on his pet projects, like, you know, outer suburban rail. I mean, why? I mean, this is costing millions and millions. In the end, even even the socialists, as you know, run out of other people's money. <laughs> and I guess that's what's happened here. But, but what a disappointment for the people of Victoria, particularly those country towns. I mean, I, I, was, I was up in country Victoria a few months back and people were genuinely excited about the idea they might actually have major sporting events there and they've been let down by their Premier. But see, my point is this. If a Premier goes to an election and one of his key policies is... We're not going to have the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne. We're going to go to regional Victoria. This was all designed to win votes. I mean, I'm mm. not a conspiracist, mm. but mm. there should be a, a mechanism that investigates the background to all of this. Well, there should be. But as you know, the mechanisms they have in, in Victoria, their, 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 their corruption commission, they have no influence whatsoever. Daniel Andrews just... just Yep. Just snubs his nose at them, yep. he ignores them, pretends they're not there. Yes. And we saw during COVID that this is a man who considers himself unaccountable to anybody except himself. Mm. Uh, he's a man with no conscience, no, no, no sympathy or compassion for the plight of ordinary people. He wouldn't care less what he's done to those towns. You mm. know, those towns where kids were, were training, they, they get inspired by watching their heroes in action. Their hopes have been dashed, but he doesn't care. I mean, he's just all about... Daniel Andrews and his own power base, yeah, isn't yeah. it? And we should know, dead right, Nick, and our viewers should know, remember, this is a bloke who's pro-China, he's anti-West, mm -hmm. he's bankrupted mm -hmm. the state of Victoria, locked it down more than any other in the world, and now this, and this is just authoritarian rule. Now, Nick is right. You hope that you hope that the voters understand, but have they got anything to vote for? Nick, this bloke, Pasuto, would help Victorians if he got out of the way, the Liberal leader. Uh, the less said about him, the better, Alan. He's, he's, he's not going to win the next election. I can't see it a million miles off. I don't think at this stage he deserves to when he can't hold his own team together. But, look, I mean, you say this for Victoria, they, they, even before the Commonwealth Games, they can claim three world records, right? The longest lockdown, one of the highest debts, and actually the highest, not, it's not a world record, but it's an Australian record, the highest COVID uh, incidents, probably highest COVID deaths per million in Australia by, by a long way. So all that lockdown was for nothing. They ended up getting more COVID and more COVID deaths in Victoria than mm. any other state in the country. But see, to, uh, tomorrow, tomorrow we'll have the brainwashed uh, left-wing media saying, oh, amazing, Andrews is amazing and refreshingly honest. He's prioritising health and education. So, Nick, if he's such a hero, why did he bid for the Games in the first place? Oh, exactly. But you're right, Alan, he's got the, he's got the press in his hands, hasn't he? They're for, with, with a few brave exceptions, you know, in the last, in, the, in, the, in that whole COVID debacle, they turned up every day at those press conferences and they wouldn't say boo to a goose. No. It was disgraceful, really. I'm ashamed of my former profession at times. Yes. I mean, he hijacked, he's hijacked Victoria. You see, there are lessons here, and I'm saying to our viewers, for the electorate when Labor governments are given their heads. And this is happening now. Bowen pleasing himself. Mm. Bowen's pleasing himself. I mean, Anthony Albanese went on about the voice from day one. Once he became elected, well, if Anthony Albanese, as I've said elsewhere, is so convinced about the virtue of the proposal, we'll pull on three debates with Peter Dutton. 
Let the electorate see what Albo's views are and what Peter Dutton's views are. And if Albo doesn't want to debate, he must have something to hide, Nick. Yeah, but going back to your point about accountability, he should be accountable. The opposition should hold him accountable, right? And at least at the federal level, you know that if you put Peter Dutton head head to head with Albanese or, or head to head with Chris Bowen, he'd, he'd, he'd hold his own very, very well. Not at state level. I mean, I don't think the Victorian Liberal no. Party knows how to tie its own shoelaces. It really is. It, <laughs> it, it, the, the administration of the party and the, and, and the philosophy and policy need to get back to where it was when Menzies founded the party. It was mm. administratively strong and also philosophically yeah. strong. And philosophically, and you've, they're, got, they're you've, not... you've got to know what you stand for. They don't know what exactly. they stand for. I mean, Andrews yeah. is now saying that the cost will be three times what was estimated, 2.6 billion to 7 million. But the original costings were done by the Andrews government. And Andrews comes out with the usual cliche, we'll not take money out of hospitals and schools in order to find an event that's three times the cost that was estimated and budgeted for last year. And those estimates were Andrews estimates. He promised in 2022, the Victoria would host the Commonwealth Games in the regional hubs of Geelong, Bendigo, Ballarat and Gibson to win votes. Most probably never intended to conduct the 2026 Commonwealth Games. And the bloke's got away with plenty. I wonder, is he going to get away with this? Let's just move to something else. Uh, Nick. How can Albanese and Bowen continue with this energy policy when a net zero Australia report states that, quote, climate policy remains in the grip of an intelligentsia that lacks the wisdom to recognise the boundaries of its own ignorance? Yet, Nick, the government blunders on, destroying the economy. Well, I, I, it just beggars belief, that net zero report that came out last week, which I think was actually arguing in favour of following the net zero course, but they pointed out it's going to cost $1.5 trillion by 2030. Boeing, as you remember, said it would be $78, million, billion, $78 billion in investment. It's actually $1.5 trillion, so he's out by a factor of 20. Uh, and not only that, Alan, it, the, what they hadn't told us, and it's just coming out now, is the amount of Australian land that's going to be covered mills, solar panels, transmission lines and all the rest. We are talking about an area half the size of the state of Victoria or twice the size of Tasmania just covered with this stuff. You know, it's, it's a radical transformation of the land. It's farmland. Up here where I am in far north Queensland, I'm seeing the most beautiful rainforest that's under threat at Chalumbin from another wind farm. It is just crazy. And and I, I scratch my head every time I sit and write a column about this. I scratch my head about how on earth uh, a, a couple of apparently, they, they look like adults to me, how, how, how Boeing and Albanese can't look around and say, this is nuts, we've got to try something else. Mm. You know, I mean, just say, it, we are not going to get there, Alan. No, Can you of course. Can you half, yeah. half of Victoria being covered with solar panels? Uh, no. Not going to happen. People I won't know. allow it. You well, I mean, $1.5 trillion is equal to the cost of the reconstruction of all of Europe after World War II. And I come again to the simple proposition. What is wrong with coal-fired power if it emits carbon dioxide, which is 0.04% of the atmosphere, Nick? Well, that's right. And as you know, if, if you're worried about emissions with clean, heli coal-fired uh, stations, you can, do, you can do a lot, lot lower than they do now, if you want that. And why not? Let's have the most efficient power stations there are. We want efficiency. And because then you come to, to nuclear. I mean, the fact that Boeing says, can you believe this, Alan? He's saying nuclear is too expensive. 
and he's looking at a plan that's going to cost one and a half trillion by the end of this decade. Right. I mean, how expensive might nuclear be? Well, I've said before, this is the most dangerous politician we've seen since World yeah. War II. He's the bloke that cost Bill Shorten, remember the election when he said, offered a divisive and punitive tax policy, said, if you don't like it, don't vote for us. And we didn't. I mean, even if we were to get net zero carbon dioxide, renewable energy can't power the nation. When coal-fired power currently, as I speak to you tonight, as I talk to you tonight, coal is most probably providing up to 80% of our energy needs. I mean, when do you think Australia will wake up? I think Bowen, as I said, is dangerous, but the public out there have got to wake up to this. Well, I think they have, Alan. I think people are waking up to this pretty quickly. It's now becoming quite a big issue, and people are catching on to the fact there are alternatives. You know, if you want... If you want clean energy, if you want carbon-free emissions, and a lot of people are really concerned about that, as you know, then why not do what the rest of the world has done? 75% of the world's clean energy comes from two sources, hydroelectricity and nuclear. 25% from the rest. And we, we're, just, we're just bucking the trend. We, we, reckon, we reckon we can do it with intermediate renewables. There's no country in the world that has done that. And every country that has tried, like Germany, have ended up in deep trouble with very expensive electricity. It's a it's a fool's errand, Alan. It really is. It I mean, is. We we could we, we don't have the capacity for hydroelectricity. Obviously, you know, there's only a limited amount of dams we can build in the, in mm -hmm. this country, uh, and uh, but, but nuclear we do have. But of course, we've got legislation, we but legislation which prevents us even contemplating nuclear. And then, of course, that would take yeah. some years to come online. While we've got stacks of coal and gas available to yeah. us, and the rest of the world want our coal and gas, and we don't. Nick, on The Voice, let's go to The Voice, because the Prime Minister says vote yes because it'll make us feel better about who we are as a nation. A most juvenile observation, Albo, but as Nick Cater has written, well, most Australians feel good about the place already. What worries them is that The Voice will make the country much worse. Nick. Yeah, that, that's right. This whole line, this sort of guilt trip he wants to put us on, you know, colonial guilt, we're supposed to be feeling terrible about what Captain Cook did or something like that. It's not washing with the Australian public. You know and I know that's not a pub-ready argument. Pe people do not feel that way. They, they, the intellectuals do. The, the intelligentsia feel terrible about the country. In fact, you know, they, they think it's a terrible place, but the rest of us, especially when you're in a place like this, you know it's almost, it is a terrific place, and we have actually handled, uh, although there have been an awful, you know, obviously... Problems, difficulties, wrong things were done, but in terms of how we, we now treat everybody in this country on equal terms, then we, we excel. And, and I think what's wrong with the voice is we feel that we're no longer going to do that. That's Some it. people are going to get... Well, a special deal, yeah. and that's just not that's just not what I, it's not what no. I signed up for when I became a citizen in this country. Absolutely, and isn't Peter that right when he says the voice will re-racialise the nation? I mean, we, last week we had mm. this is very interesting, Nick. Last week we had a federal court decision where a 66-year-old Aboriginal went to the court citing the Commonwealth Racial Discrimination Act, which requires that Aboriginal people receive the pension for the same duration as other Australians. But this bloke argued that he should get the age pension earlier because of a shorter life expectancy. But Nick, here's the point. The federal court found the social security system should not discriminate in favour of one race. Should, that's the words. Should not discriminate in favour of one race, the federal court. But here's a prime minister who wants our constitution 
the foundation document of the nation, to do just that, discriminate in favour of one race. Nick, how does that make exactly. sense? It doesn't make any sense, Alan. In 1967, the reason Australians voted overwhelmingly for the referendum in 1967, 90.7%, was because that was a referendum which was about getting rid of any discrimination against Aborigines, racial discrimination against Aborigines. Now we want to discriminate in their favour. And as we've seen recently in the Supreme Court in the United States, they've just reaffirmed what it says in the 14th Amendment, that you cannot treat anybody differently on the basis of race, whether positively or negatively. You know, in their case, it was about special admissions to universities. We, that, that, is, that is the way people in this country understand how things happen here too, that, that nobody, you know, nobody has got any extra uh, tickets on themselves, no, no extra benefits purely on the grounds of being race. No. You get extra benefits for working hard, but, you know, yep. we don't we don't say that race has you, makes you a better or a worse person. It's Absolutely. entirely irrelevant. Just coming... And reinducing it, and it really gets me angry. Uh, yes, mm. and you should be angry, and all Australians should be too. You just come back to this 14th Amendment of the US Constitution, and you refer to Justice John Marshall Harlan, who argued way back in the 1890s, and I quote, our Constitution is colourblind, and it neither knows right. nor tolerates classes among citizens. The law requires man, uh, sorry, regards man as man and takes no account of his surroundings or his colour. Now, Nick referred to the Supreme Court ruling last month, which declared that race-based admission programs for universities were unconstitutional. And you make the point, Nick, it isn't possible, is it, to discriminate in favour of one group without actually discriminating against another? Yeah, exactly, because the complainants in this case in the United States were uh, largely Asian students who felt, why should we be denied a place because they're, they're giving favourable places to African-American students? But in the end, it does no benefit to the group that you're trying to benefit because it ends, you know, one of the most telling, one of the most um, compelling reads in that whole case was the case, the supporting judgment uh, by Justice Clarence Thomas, who, as you know, is an African-American, yep. born, born and brought up in, in poverty in the Deep South. Now, he, of all people, you'd think would be arguing in favour of special treatment for African-Americans, but he said no. It may, he wished he hadn't gone to university to study law because when he came out, everybody thought, well, you're not really up to the job. He really had to work hard to prove he was up to the job and he wasn't just a diversity candidate. So it really has a terrible effect and, and treats, I mean, it would treat, in their case, African-Americans, in our case, Aboriginals, as if they're just not up to it, you know, as if they're somehow deficient and yeah. they need this extra help. Yeah. Well, that's clearly not. You, yeah. you and I know many Indigenous people that have done very, very brilliant things in this country, in sport, in politics, in business, you name it. In the theatre, in the theatre everywhere. In the theatre. Yeah. Look, this yeah. Justice Clarence Thomas that, that Nick referred to, an African-American passionate in his argument that discrimination is always wrong. And he wrote in the judgment, I've long believed that large racial preferences in college admissions stamp blacks and Hispanics with a badge of inferiority. That's what Nick has just referred to. Because what we then get is the achievements of all members of a minority group are tainted because others have succeeded on merit. Where is this, where's this stupid debate going to end? I mean, it's being sponsored by the Prime Minister of Australia. 
Well, it is. They're now talking about getting universities to do special quotas for Aborigines here, which would be a disaster. I mean, why, we, we would be introducing it at the very moment the Supreme Court of the United States, has, in a historic judgment, has ruled it's unconstitutional. So it, it, it would be a, a, a terrible move. But, of course, I think the, the, when you look back on it, Alan, and, and I don't think it would be realised at the time, in the 67 referendum, they did have a clause which enabled laws to be passed for the benefit yes, of Aboriginal yes. people. Yeah, but that's now, different in hindsight, from... I think... Uh, exactly, and in hindsight, I think I'd argue that that should be removed, and I'd perfectly happily vote to remove that at a referendum, mm. but I'm, I'm certainly not going to vote for what they're putting before No, I mean, I mean here, here we've got a Prime Minister of Australia in relation to The Voice wanting an explicit constitutional bias in favour of one race. Now, Nick wrote a brilliant piece about this recently, and it refers to Justice Clarence Thomas again in an observation Australia should take on board. He talked about looking past our differing skin colours and identities, quote, Justice Thomas, and see each other for what we truly are, individuals with unique thoughts, perspectives and goals, but with equal dignity and equal rights under the law. What matters, said Justice Clarence Thomas, is not the barriers they face, but how they choose to confront them. And their race is not to blame for everything. This is an African-American, I might add. Their race is not to blame for everything, good or bad, that happens in their lives. A myopic worldview based on individuals' skin colour to the total exclusion of their personal choices, he wrote, is nothing short of racial determinism. Nick. Put simply, we can't embrace race-based changes to the Constitution, and that's why we should vote no, surely. Yeah, and it's even more crude than that, Alan, because you remember early on in the campaign, the Prime Minister suggested that the black basket, a black American basketball player, Shaquille O'Neal, I think I might have his name wrong. Shaquille O'Neal, yeah. Was going, mm. That's the guy. You'll remember Anthony Albanese suggested that he might be an ambassador for The Voice. Like, why? Like, the guy had hardly ever been to Australia. You know, why should he be an ambassador for The Voice? Well, in Albanese's head, obviously, the connection was he's black. And, and when it gets as crude as that, Alan, you realise the Prime Minister just hasn't put any intellectual muscle into this whatsoever. He's a lazy thinker. He's putting up some populist plan that he thinks is going to win. And I think the most important thing is we, we, we prove him wrong by showing that actually Australians don't think about colour like he does. Good on you. Wonderful stuff, Nick. Good to talk to you, my friend. There he is, Nick Cater. You can hear him here on ADH at 8 o'clock on Thursday nights, and he writes brilliantly in the Australian newspaper. Thank you for your time, Nick. Well, before I go tonight, during my break, I had the real pleasure of visiting Rockhampton. Sadly, there are young people, products of the modern education system, who wouldn't have a clue where Rockhampton is, let alone know that it's on the Fitzroy River. In fact, so little is known about our geography and history, yet we keep pouring money into education. It's what our children are being taught or not being taught that is the issue, but that's for another day. Rockhampton is a beautiful city, population about 83,000. I have never seen, there are those lovely pictures, look, look at that. I've never seen such impeccable landscaping in any city I've been to in my life. Everywhere, isn't that a beautiful picture? Down every street, down every street, leaving the glorious, look at those buildings, glorious buildings, uh, leaving the airport, glorious trees and palms and flowers, splendidly maintained. I was the guest of the Rockhampton Jockey Club, the ambassador for their cup day. 
Rob Carr, the chairman, his wife Leonie were splendid hosts along with Ian Mill and his team. Friendly, agreeable and appreciative. I had a chance to catch up with an old mate, Max Gunthorpe and his wife Hilary. This is the beef capital of Australia and Russell Hughes does a great job on that front. I was taken to the Rocks Cafe Bar and Restaurant at Japoon. My God, Carla, the owner and the hostess, phenomenally generous. And I can seriously say you couldn't do any better anywhere in Australia. Now, the reason I say all this is because obviously I spoke to many people. And the conclusion was that regional Australia doesn't count. In particular, a shortage of teachers and doctors and specialists. And now we learn this week vets. One man told me of his wife having a caesarean birth and they needed a paediatrician. The cost of travel was just exorbitant and they have no paediatrician. Regional airfares are appallingly dear. But the answer to all of this is simple. If we're short of vets and only 8% of the 4,000 vets in New South Wales work in regions or remotely, and that's true across Australia. The Australian Veterinary Association data from 2021 showed that 46% of veterinary job vacancies in rural practices were not filled after 12 months. One position was advertised for two years in Goulburn, not filled. And it's the same with teachers. There are people teaching our students maths and science in particular with no qualifications in maths or science. Governments are ignorant, out of touch, with a metropolitan focus and nothing is done. Well, the solution is simple and it relates to this burdensome hex debt that students endure. I mentioned earlier, can you believe that the hex debt is indexed? It's called bashing up our young people who are trying to better themselves. But here's an answer. If we're short of maths and science teachers and vets, waive the hex debt on the condition that they take an appointment in regional and remote Australia for at least five years. They'd find a wonderful lifestyle, pleasant people and a cheaper cost of living. Rockhampton proved that. Will there be any bureaucrat, because most politicians have no ideas, is there a bureaucrat who can turn that into a simple policy? Tell school leavers who qualify academically that if they do a university course majoring in maths, science or vet science, their hex fee will be waived on the condition that they accept appointments in regional Australia for five years. There's a start. That's it from me tonight. I hope you've enjoyed the program. Don't forget you can listen to tonight's program on your podcast app from 6am tomorrow. Just search Alan Jones. And of course, on the ADH app, you can find all the programs anytime that it suits. Tell your friends. The ADH viewer pool grows every day. Thank you for viewing ADH tonight. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.